0: What's the most important problem facing the country today? You probably have your own answer. Everyone has their own answer when it's posed in that kind of open-ended way. And that's exactly what Gallup does every month at a tracking poll. They've been doing it for a long, long time. They take a pretty big, statistically meaningful sample of Americans. They ask that question. Every month, it's a tracking poll. And it's not a leading question, of course, it's important. It's not as in are you happy about it or do you like our president or are you worried about the war in Ukraine or are you anxious about climate change? I mean those are obviously leading questions uh, in a, <laughs> and we if, if many people, you know polls will show you a lot of things uh, if, if how you frame questions uh, as anybody anybody knows. These tracking polls are are useful, especially when you ask it that way, and because it tells you where people's heads are, uh, and you get all kinds of answers. There's a very big basket of things people say, and they fall into categories. So, to cut to the chase, when you when 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 Gallup asks this question every month, and they did last month, they will post this month, and you can find this poll online. They post it. It doesn't cost you any money. Use a Google machine. Just type in Gallup tracking poll. Put in what's the most important problem facing the country today. And what you'll find is the number one issue that comes back spontaneously in various ways and forms are economic or financial issues. They're number one. Uh, The top two, in fact, uh, right now are economic issues. And number three is poor government and poor leadership. And then there's a basket of things that people say in this open-ended question that range from immigration to the budget deficit, obviously an economic issue, issue unifying the country, poverty, obviously an economic issue, crime. And in fact, the top 10 uh, responses, uh, you get through the top 10 before you get to one that's uh, about the environment or climate as sort of a spontaneous response to the most important question. And then there's all kinds of things. You take a look at the poll, people, people, uh, every, you know, people's views of what the most important issue ranges from race relations to the state of the media to crime to the state of the state of the police force to uh, education. I mean, all, you know, the judicial system, lack of respect, drugs, but you'll, you'll find a pattern, right? The pattern that you see is that the responses that people have when you ask them an open-ended question. The majority of Americans, the first thing they'll talk about uh, is that they worry about the economy, the state of the economy, the personal finances, the state of the future economy. So it's that context that I want to talk in this episode about the state of the future economy, where we're going. I mean, we've had essentially stock stagnation for two years. There's been a lot of volatility in the stock market, but it's essentially gone sideways for two years. It's gone down, then back up, and up and down every day, big moves, but if you take a look at The Dow Jones is an indicator. It's essentially today where it was two years ago. So sideways movement, flat, flat. We've got politicians bragging about inflation, moderating slightly, but everybody knows inflation is pretty ugly right now and it's pretty stubborn. It's still at record high levels. By record high, I mean multi-decade high levels of inflation. And and people are also worried about automation and jobs. As I've talked about earlier, especially about AI and chat GPT. So the context that I want to frame is sort of a revisit and to some extent a repackaging of some things I've talked about before uh, with respect to technology and where we're going, where this country go, is going in particular, because it, it's a big, the big picture, the sort of the macroeconomic trends that were that we're, uh, Engaged, or engaged in creating, if you like, or being subjected to, because both happen, things happen that we can't control, things happen that we try to make happen, so engaged in or trying to or trying to make happen, being subjected to, uh, that broad context actually matters in terms of what we think about the future, and what we think about the future actually matters, and in fact, I've quoted him before, but I want to quote one of my favorite observations about which um, a whole book was written. And it's the, the observation by Joel Moikir, who is an economic historian that I quote frequently in my book, but he's written many books. Uh, Joel Moikir has said, and he wrote, it's the first line in one of his, his most recent books, is that the economic growth uh, depends far more on what people believe than most economists care to admit. I think that's almost an exact quote. And by, by that, Moikiro didn't mean sort of silly Pollyanna, you know, every day is going to get better and better, the sun will come out tomorrow stuff. What he meant was specifically, and perhaps obviously, is how people saw the state of the world and the state of their life and the state of the opportunities that are emerging for them and their families or their friends, how they believed things were progressing, what was really going on. Impacted growth because people people essentially act on faith. Uh, All of us act on faith. If you do something that you'll get an outcome in the the future, it's effectively an act of faith. You have influence on it by doing things. You have exogenous variables that impact whether or not you be successful in doing it. And I'm not going to go down a personal psychology rabbit hole. My point is that that you're your understanding and belief on what the opportunities are has a lot to do with your willingness to engage and do things and that's what creates growth that's and that that is driven by what is available for you to use to do the things that you do whether you're an engineer whether you're whether you're a, a social worker whether you are a banker whether you are operating a backhoe it doesn't matter what you do you have an understanding or belief about what's going on in the machinery and the tools and techniques of things available to you to do your job, to perform, and to, if you like, succeed. So that's sort of a, kind of a big touchy feely perspective, like, but it's also, that's why I quoted Joel Moore here, very true. What you believe about the future matters. And by that understanding what's actually going on will influence what you believe. Hence, what I wanna talk about right right now in in contexting the state of our economy, and that's the reason we're gonna talk about economic growth, you know, jobs and wealth. Uh, Talk about that again, because it's so important. Uh, There's a whole degrowth movement now, as you all probably know, that's animated by the belief, which is correct, by the way, that the only way to, to stop human beings from having some impact in the environment is to stop growth. That's in fact true. Uh, we minimize our effect on the environment with technology and, tech, and and our ability with wealth to deploy the technology for minimizing our impacts on the environment. But human beings have an impact on the environment because we're in it. We use it, right? That's just the nature of civilization. And there's a whole degrowth movement that wants to stop growth. You know, good luck with that. But because if you take a look at the data, uh, let's say, I'm just going to use the last 50 years, last half century, and you look at it, let's look at it globally because Global growth actually matters. Um, it What matters most for us in America is American growth, but it, ha, it is not only is an, an interconnected world, it's been an interconnected world for a long time. It's certainly for uh, all of modern history going back centuries, and most certainly for the last half century, we're a very connected world in terms of trade, communications, and in fact, in, in cultural terms. So how the world grows matter. And the world's economy I mean, it's a lot bigger now than it was 50 years ago. I mean, astonishingly bigger. I mean, the gro- global global GDP uh, 50 years ago was under 10 trillion dollars. The whole globe's GDP is over 100 trillion dollars now. I mean, this is an astonishing amount of growth. There's there's been you know hiccups along the way. You know, the 80s stagflation period caused global growth to go sideways, didn't go up much. Then the we had the same uh, challenge again briefly in the uh, in the late in the nineties and then we had a you know, the massive recession, the great, the great recession of the, of the, of uh, 2008, you know, the things go sideways, go down briefly, but the overall trend is up and we know why that's why that amount of growth has happened. It's not because the world's gotten bigger with more people. I mean, a 10 X growth in the wealth of the world uh, didn't come from 10 X more people. In the world in the last 50 years, there aren't 10x more people in the world. So, you know, it's about you know, 2x more people in the world than there was 50 years ago. So, where did that come from? Well, we know where growth comes from. And as I've talked about before, but I'm going to say it again because it's, it's so damned important. You know, and I'll quote uh, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, Robert Solow. He got the Nobel Prize in 87 for framing this observation in a very rigorous way with, with, if you like, proof. What he said was technology was the dominant engine of growth. He didn't say it was the only engine of growth, it's the dominant engine of growth. By that he means technology progress leads to greater productivity, greater productivity, fewer inputs of labor, fuel, materials to get more outputs and better outputs. That creates wealth, technology creates wealth. Technology is a dominant engine of growth. So, Going to return to the the question is what what are those technologies what you know what is going what is going on today that would make one believe certainly makes me believe that we're on the, on the the cusp of a of a discontinuity if you like a major inflection in economic growth coming to the world uh, obviously I'll say <laughs> it requires the stipulation if we let it happen um, you know as I wrote in my book and as I've said many times I'm going to say it again. It, human beings have the capacity to Sovietize any economy, so we can ruin growth by destructive policies. I'm not saying that there are perfect policies; there, there, there are perfectly stupid policies, but there are perfectly good policies. It's, e- it's far ineffective. It's in, in a weird way, it's far easier to destroy growth than to let it happen in some ways. But obviously, that's not entirely true because the world's growing. So anyway, not being facetious, what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, the Overall trend is driven by underlying phenomenology that we have these periods of discontinuity where major new technology inflections happen. And by major new technology inflections, I mean structural changes in the underlying technology of an economy allow more, more different, and more, more growth, more productivity. And we can look at that through the lens of infrastructures. And and I do this um, again in my book and many lectures and speeches I've given, but I do it again now because. Again, because it's I think it's very very important. Uh, you know, the construction of railroads, the railroad era. If you wanted to look at the industrial revolution through the lens of infrastructures, you would look at pre-industrial revolution. You know, canals, things like that. But in the modern in modern history, it was the creation and the build out of massive infrastructures that allowed the technologies that the infrastructures represented to flourish and to create broad. Broad prosperity, so railroads, to te- telegraph system, you know, oil pipelines. Frankly, road systems, tele- telephones, you know, the, the airway system, uh, the internet itself. These are these are infrastructures, infrastructures of physical machines and things and networks and management of the machines, networks and things that allows the proliferation of the, not just the technology, but what the technology allows, which is productivity. Our newest infrastructure, our first new infrastructure. Uh, in in a long time is the cloud. And as I said, I said before, and I'm repeating myself because it's important, the cloud is not the internet. The cloud is as different from the internet as the internet is different from the telephone network. The first internet used the telephone network and it effectively uh, uh, still does. It's the same kind of idea, the same, same structure, same kind of network of wires, cables, and, and wireless connections. The cloud uses the internet, the cloud uses computers and data centers, the cloud uses software, the cloud uses end, end devices like your smartphone, PC, or any other kind of smart device, whether it's a smart watch or a controller on, a, on an industrial machine. It's a network of all those things around an infrastructure that is essentially uh, seamless and allows not just communications connectivity, but information connectivity. As I said before, what the cloud allows you to do per, in your personal life or in business is to engage in inference help, not computational help. Inference is is different than computation. Inference is the equivalent of saying what's the best route to, to take, and you get a bunch of options. Not You don't get a specific answer, and you get a uh, – ideas, uh, it amplifies and accelerates your ability to make decisions. This is true whether it's in a manufacturing process or in healthcare. We also know that a lot of the inference tools, the informational support tools, aren't good enough yet. Some of them are rather good. The mapping, for example, is pretty good. Uh, A lot of of things aren't, aren't good enough yet because the inference tools aren't powerful enough yet. And of course, that's the powerful enough means better artificial intelligence tools, better software, better connectivity, better information, not just more information, but better quality information. As soon as I describe that's what we need to get better inference tools, it's self-evident that those things are coming. That's the nature, it's the nature of the beast. So it's coming, as we see, sort of epitomized by all the excitement about chat GPT, which I talked about in an earlier podcast. And if you're listening to this and you hadn't heard that podcast, uh, obviously I recommend you go back and, you know, find it, listen to it. Uh, I'll mention a little more about chat GPT in a minute, but th- that is is an example of one class of artificial intelligence, one class of inference instead of computational tool. The point I want to make right now is the, the reason that I know and believe, I, I believe, <laughs> believe in knowing her. I know what I believe. I believe what I know. Anyway, <laughs> the reason I, I, I'm saying, and I believe that we are at a, uh, a discontinuity and inflection point is seen in sort of the patterns of history. You know, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. This is particularly true with respect to technology. So let me give you some examples of why of the, the timelines and the, and how I know we're at a, a discontinuity equivalent to something we've seen in history. For example, uh, be, for the automobile and, and the, these analogies, analogies are never perfect, but these analogies are, I think, are instructive and, and, and accurate in terms of their the utility and making making broad predictions about macroeconomic effects of technologies. The automobile was invented, and there were, there were hundreds of automobile companies and millions of automobiles in the world for twenty five years before the Model T. So the Model T came along in nineteen twenty four. Uh, in fact, it was cl- the, the, the automobile in in some useful form that could be sold at that point was almost exactly 25 years old as a as a product of technology. But it took the invention of the Model T uh, to turn, and, and cars like it that were similar and imitated, to, to turn the car into a broadly useful technology tool. The automobile age essentially took off in the 1920s. Uh, Automobile ownership went went from a few percent of the population to a fifth of the population in that decade, and then it kept rising until today's to today's you know by the end of the 20th century, where there were more more cars and licensed drivers in the United States, which is the case now. So the inflection came 25 years after the invention of the car, but there was a lot of excitement about cars for those first 25 years. People weren't stupid then; they knew it was a big deal. It was obviously a big deal. All kinds of use cases, all kinds of uh, uh, businesses started to, to be created around not just building cars, but using cars for new kinds of, new kinds of, new kinds of services or making the existing services uh, better. It was it was a remarkable discontinuity. So, how about aviation? Oh, by the way, go back to cars. I mean, we had to build infrastructures, fueling infrastructures, maintenance infrastructures, road, highway systems. And those, those took time to build. Um, and they weren't fully built out, in, in fact, when the Model T came along. But they were beginning to be built out. There were paved roads at that time. Not There was no interstate highway system. It wouldn't be for another 25 years till Eisenhower came along as president and signed the Highway Act. And we got the interstate highway system, which in no small irony and no coincidence was pretty close to 25 years, by the way, after the Model T, you know, within a couple of years. switch to aviation. I mean, commercial aviation, as we know it today, the number of revenue miles, number of passengers flying, reached an inflection point when Boeing uh, introduced the 707 passenger jet aircraft in 1957. That was 25 years after the invention of an airplane, 25 years after not the first airplane, you know, the Lindbergh, but I mean, an airplane you could actually use and the flight like Lindbergh's flight um, across the Atlantic and the stunt he performed barnstorming. Uh, He went to every single state in 95 days. Uh, He flew around the United States in a, it was a sort of a demonstration stunt. This was right after he crossed the Atlantic to show that airplanes could be, uh, an airplane could be flown and taken off every day. Get everybody all excited. It's widely credited as the era that really kicked off the use of airplanes in broad sense. which they did? Nineteen twenties airplanes were being used. Uh, they were used some before that, but they really, they really, they they were really used extensively for everything from, you know, transporting people that who had wealth, doing surveying, warfighting, war fighting, obviously. But the big pivot in aviation did not happen. For 25 years after that, until 1957, when a machine, a tool, and networks became good enough for widespread use, the era of the modern passenger jetliner that started in 1957. That was the inflection point. 25 years after an era of lots of use for airplanes. Computing, same pattern, by the way. The computing era uh, in terms of the 20th century really didn't take off until about 1964 with the introduction of the IBM mainframe. At that point, computers had been around as a technology, as a product uh, for almost 25 years, right? In fact, the first electronic computer predates World War II. Famously, they were put to work during the war with ENIAC. And then there were lots of computers used in government and in high-end banking businesses uh, for more than 20 years after the war. But they didn't change the world. They didn't. They weren't in widespread use the way they became uh, between after 1964. From that 1964 on, uh, there was a massive expansion in the use of computers, electronic computation, in the uh, in our economy. So again, pattern: 25 years of use before the inflection when computing got good enough to really penetrate the economy broadly, which was 1964. So let's turn to the cloud. The first cloud data center uh, was an Exodus data center in Santa Clara. Um, you will not be surprised for me to tell you that was 25 years ago, <laughs> roughly, uh, just a little over 25 years ago. It was 1995. So, you know, we're pushing on past the 25th year, though. The real the real emergence of the cloud, as we know it today, which is thousands of data centers seamlessly connected to the network that we can access anytime, anywhere. That sort of tipping point uh, of being real arrived roughly 2005, roughly 2020. The cloud era as we know it is beginning now, 25 years after building out and using, using uh, what we could call internet class services as they begin to morph into the cloud. So that's, We're at the same kind of tipping point. It takes time to build up these networks and infrastructures. It always has in modern technology times. It actually has over all of time, but we're talking about modern technology. And we are at the point now where the cloud is becoming really useful. You know, ChatGPT is a good example of, uh, a proto example of approaching really useful computing because it's, again, natural language processing. You know, Alexa and Siri on steroids, if you like, when you can actually not just ask a computer in natural language, whether you're typing it or saying it, to do something like, you know, what's the answer to a question or what's the best route? That one's not so hard. It's been going on for a number of years. But the more complicated, context specific kind of communication, dynamic questions you want to ask a computational system, those require a form of artificial intelligence and machine learning has been very very difficult to do very computationally expensive very slow until now and we know the tipping point is not just in seeing something like chat gpt become popular but also as i talked about in an earlier podcast with the arrival of really really powerful information engines i mean the the automobile age was kicked off by the internal combustion engine but it had to become useful and that took 25 years but useful means cheap enough produce the volume at low enough cost, high enough for liability. The same is true of jet engines, by the way. Jet engines have been around since uh World War II, but it, it took until until the 19 uh the the Boeing 707 in 1957 to make and en- the jet engine useful enough, reliable enough, cheap enough to be put into widespread use. Same is true of of computational engines. Uh we've had uh Vacuum tubes and transistors, the so-called computer chips that could do computation, they didn't get good enough, reliable enough to build at scale to make IBM mainframes until the mid '60s. We come to the in- inference engines, machine learning chips, which are different than computational chips. These are called graphics processing units. Sometimes they're called neural processing units. Sometimes they're called neuromorphic chips, but they're not computational engines. The first one was arguably the NVIDIA chip. Uh, in the late 90s but it's taken 25 years to build those chips so that they're good enough accurate enough cheap enough powerful enough to be really different different in the sense I can deploy them widely that's where we are now with uh, with computational information engines inference engines we're at a pivot in history again the the quintessential example of that pivot by the way is a is a chip that I that I, I am fascinated by, talked about before, made by a, a, a small private company, still small for the moment, uh, so we can't buy stock in it, called Cerebros, which introduced last year a chip that's the size of a small pizza, a single chip, the size of a small pizza, a big dinner plate. That single chip is a is a machine learning inference engine. It's, it's 10,000 times faster, more powerful than the most powerful NVIDIA Graphics process unit, the most powerful number two chip, 10,000 times more powerful, one chip. Uh, it's it's not going to end up on your smartphone. It's not going to shrink in size. It's the whole point of it. it is that it's not, it is it is intended to be powerful, not tiny. And it's, so it's going to end up being in data centers at the center of the cloud. Why does that matter? Well, because it's 10,000 times more powerful and it'll be in data centers. And give you an idea of the consequence of what that means because again everything about making inference systems that are available to you is that they have to be better than they are today by a lot as good as chat gpt is it's still pretty it you know i would i would say it, it maybe it's the equivalent of a boeing 707 engine um i don't think so i think it's pre boeing 707 uh, so we, we need the Boeing 707 engine, which is the Cerebrus chip, if you like. Then we need software built on top of that, we'll call it the airframe and the services. And, and both things, those things are happening now because we have now available a chip and there'll be competitors like Cerebrus, which is 10,000 times more powerful. And what that means is that the economic cost of accessing infra, uh, machine learning and the so-called artificial intelligence tools that are possible, the natural language processing, to engage in talking to a computer, they've they've just gotten a lot cheaper overnight. Think about it this way: the most powerful computer in the world is the Frontier supercomputer, at Oak Ridge National Labs in Tennessee. It was commissioned about two years ago, and it's the first computer that went to what's called an exaflop, which is a thousand petaflops, which is a million, which is a million teraflops. Uh, which is a billion gigaflops, gigaflop or gigahertz, if you like, in, in the old words we used to use, but computer speed, really powerful computer, cost $600 million to build, has 40, 47,000 um, know, processing units, combination of, of computer processing units and uh, conventional ones and graphics processing units, 47,000 of them, inhales 20 megawatts of power. So amazing the guys who built Cerebros uh, built an exaflop computer. So equivalent to the only computer in the world that it's exaflop level at the moment. They built one in about a week using 16, not 47,000, 16 of the Cerebros chips. And that would cost about $30 million <laughs> instead of $600 million. So, and that's gone on the cloud in a cloud service they call Andromeda, which is cute. So we're going past the cloud to the cosmos Uh, this is an inflection point. It's a big deal because that means it's going to be possible for those kinds of computational horsepower to be deployed broadly in the cloud, uh, for everybody to have access to getting answers to all kinds of questions that machines can more usefully answer for us using natural language on our part. Huge deal. And again, this is an economic inflection in terms of the utility function of computing, When computing was distributed, that is on desktops in your hands, the pre-cloud era, it was getting better at 16-fold per decade, measured not in terms of how fast the computers were, but how much computing horsepower you could buy per dollar. So you got this nearly 2,000% increase in an economic metric per decade, which everybody was amazed at. But in the cloud era, what we've now got is an improvement in that underlying metric, how much compute horsepower I can buy for a dollar, improving at a rate a thousandfold per decade. I mean, this is astonishing. This is the biggest shift in an an economic indicator of, of relevance to the broad state of our economy that's happened, I would say in all of human history. So the, again, to restate this, the, what the cloud structure is doing, combined with the combination of the utility function of the cloud, that the ability for each of us anytime, anywhere, whether you're in business or personal life, to access computational horsepower, the, the economic value that you're accessing is improving a thousandfold per decade. And that rate of improvement has been going on now for about 15 years. And that rate of improvement is about to accelerate again because of the kinds of technologies that Cerebras chips and other machine learning chips represent in combination with new classes of uh, math or algorithms, if you like. Uh, This is not the rise of the machines taking over the world. This is the rise of the machines becoming useful enough, finally, that you don't have to uh, do complicated things to update your computer to have good security, to have to, to have, have easily understand the context of the question you're asking why you're answering and getting answers presented to you in ways that are genuinely useful, whether that's, in, again, in business or in your personal life. Again, to reduce it to a simplistic example of where the utility function will first show up, most of us have had, had the uh, unfortunate experience of having to deal episodically with a chatbot Uh, You all know what a chatbot is, is when you're trying to do something online and then you get a prompt saying, would you like to do it? You know, whatever the business is, offers you an online chat with a chatbot to answer questions to help you navigate either filling a form out, uh, you know, getting an answer to a process question. And these are all sort of the kinds of things that are are embedded in all commerce. You know, there's all kinds of rules and nomenclature and requirements, whether you're onboarding at a company, whether you're updating some software, whether you're trying to figure out the answer to a finance question, or what does this word mean in the context of when you're making an investment in stocks, whatever the thing is. Uh, Sometimes Googling, it's not good enough. You want to ask a context-specific question. Some of the chatbots are pretty good, but most of them are pretty lousy. AI-driven chatbots driven by the new class of software and chips, which is sort of where chat GPT is, right? But that 10 times better will become really useful. Uh, you'll get answers to, to, to routine questions much more quickly in a much more useful way. This would be profoundly useful, not just you know, in ordering stuff at a website where you weren't sure what the return policy is. It'll be useful for that. And that's not nothing, frankly, given my experience with that, but it'll also be very useful in things like um, you, when you onboard a company or you change jobs, your, your new assignment, or you'd be retrained, re-qualify for something. There's all kinds of new rules of things that you have to fill out. Some of them are not obvious or okay. You, you want to get easy answered. You want it to be in natural language, easy way. And you say, well, I need to talk to a person for that. Yeah, of course. And then that, may, it takes a person's time to answer your question. And many times a really good chatbot should be able to answer the straightforward question. You should go to the person when the thing is really complicated. But even answering simple questions is not easy for most computers. That's what we're going to make easy. This is also relevant, by the way, uh, whether you're in a, in a manufacturing line, it's a safety procedure, or you're on a construction site and you have a, a specific question when you're on the, we'll call it, call it the front line, and you want to get the right answer, you want to get it quickly, and you want to be able to ask it in a natural language way. Uh, that's what that's what's coming. It's relevant, by the way, for basic research and design and engineering and R and D, because so much—and we know this because National Academy of Sciences does surveys on this—so much of of researcher's time is, is consumed by by doing uh, form filling, answering pedestrian but important or required questions, and get, getting answers to very specific regulatory or rules based. Um, procedures that you have to follow in order to get the grant money or to complete the experiment or to test whether the machine you're using is working properly, whether it's been maintained recently. All those things, all those routine things get easier in a world where artificial intelligence is working uh, with natural language processing to erase the skids, if you like, of an economy. It's called productivity. These are kinds of inflections that don't happen very often in history. We had that kind of inflection in the transportation economy. If we measured Transportation services by sort of the same kind of a metric that we we can measure information services. We have the, you know, we could chart again, history rhymes. We can chart the same kind of pattern. By that, by metric, I mean I'm talking about computational access to computational services measured in terms of computations per second per dollar of spending, right? Because it's the dollar I spend that matters. Obviously, spending military class amount of money, I can get a lot of computations per second. What I want to know is, do I get more computations per second per dollar? Do I get more of them for fewer dollars? That's the metric. You could use the same metric for uh, transportation services, whatever the mode of transportation. Uh, you could, And when you buy a fare, what you're really buying is feet per hour per dollar. That's an equivalent metric. You're buying a service using machines that provides you know, provides for you to get you or a good somewhere. Uh, about, let's say, talk about getting you somewhere in feet per hour per dollar. And and I I did this, calcul- I may have been the first person to sort of try to think about, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm just saying it was an interesting thought experiment. Uh, and when I was writing my book, I was trying to think about how do I, what's the analog in technology of transportation? And the analog is feet per hour per dollar instead of computations per second per dollar. Mm-hmm. And if you map out uh, uh, the cost of fares for people in real dollars since the, the the age of the sailing ship moved to the age of stagecoach to rail to card to airplane, and you and you look at uh, the cost in feet per hour per dollar, we find out that that also improved uh, by a thousand fold. Uh, but the cloud the clouds metric has improved a thousand fold in the decade to get the transportation services metric to increase a thousandfold, which is a big deal, obviously. It took a century. It was, this, it was the century from the dawn of the real age, end of the stagecoach era, from that century to the, the modern aviation age, we saw a 1,000-fold improvement in the number of feet per hour per dollar fare you spent. It is beyond obvious the impact of that, what that impact of that economic metric has been in the economy related to things like transportation services. I mean, you don't have to Be a historian to to know of the profound difference, and therefore, and the how uh, of that what that metric has had on the economy, and and therefore, how many people have had the opportunity to to travel and to do things because of cheap transportation. We are doing the same economic impact in the information services, but we've done it in a decade, and we're going to do it again another decade. We're a long way away from another thousandfold improvement in transportation services. It could happen one day. We're sort of on a uh, move sideways on that one right now, but the information era has just begun to do that again. And that will matter, right? Because uh, as I've talked about before, when it comes to the broad nature of our economy, one of the things that we need are people, not just machines, but we have to amplify people. This has been true over all time. We need working age people to do the task as the world becomes wealthier, that means a wealthier world wants more services and products because there are more wealthy, not just more people, but more wealthy people. And more wealthy people want more, more products and services that they couldn't have before they were wealthier. And that means you need more people to produce those products and services, self-evidently. But w- our working age population is shrinking. So we have an expanding appetite for products and services and a shrinking workforce, working age workforce, able to provide those products and services. What's the solution? Well, Elon Musk gave the right answer in part. He gave two answers. He said it many times. We need more people. I agree with him. The problem is uh, when it comes to demographics, uh, and this is, again, another obvious <laughs> observation, these are long cycle things. Uh, whether the world will ever get more people again, uh, what we do know is that the trends, uh, in the certainly unequivocally in the wealthy world, the trends are to a shrinking population, especially shrinking working age workforce, and most rapidly in China, by the way. The trends in the uh, less developed world are still to a rising working age population, but it saturates the growth rate of the working age population for the rest of the world, uh, slows and stops growing around 2040, and then starts shrinking. So again, we have a world that's getting wealthier with more people who have more wealth, who want more products and services, creating more demand for them in a world that simultaneously will have fewer people, available to provide those products and services. So self-evidently the only solution while we wait for maybe some day in a far, far future with maybe population trends reverse itself, subject for another day, uh, you need to be able to increase the productivity of the people doing the work. That's called technology. And we need to accelerate that because for the first time in human history, not only do we have to increase productivity to accommodate rising wealth, the appetites created by rising wealth, but we have to accelerate productivity even more to accommodate the decline in the working age population, which has never happened in history. This is a shock. I mean, this is really, really a profoundly important discontinuity where, tech, where technology, in fact, is the only solution, both Robots that are virtual in the cloud, like Chat GPT, and physical robots, which I've talked about many times uh in previous podcasts. Physical robots that can amplify humans doing manual labor. We need both. We need them now, we need them soon. And fortunately, they're getting good enough now and soon. It's just a happy coincidence that it's happening, which is why I'm an optimist, by the way. It's we didn't it's not a coincidence unless you believe in karma or you think this is a, a, a grand plan of our deity. That somehow God planned this to uh, to have it happen si- simultaneously, that we would have a shrinking working age population, contemporaneous with the final development of technology is good enough to really, really amplify human labor in a way to continue to provide more wealth for more people, especially for people who don't have wealth now. So. The Federal Reserve right now is trying to conquer a problem which they're not going to be able to conquer. They're trying to kill jobs by, you know, that's what the whole point of the, the ratcheting up interest rates is essentially the, to solve the, quote, problem of inflationary wage increases. Inflationary wage increases come because companies have to pay more to keep employees or compete for employees because there aren't enough employees. There are more jobs than there are people available to take them. And that's been true. And what's starting to starting to happen before the great lockdowns we were in a we are in a period of uh, five or six years for the first time in, in for a first time for that length of time in all of recorded history for this data with more jobs and people willing and able to take them that ended with the lockdowns but it came roaring back right after the lockdowns ended so here we are in in new normal where the world especially the western world europe and the united states will have and has Employers looking for more people than there are people willing and able to do the work. And so what that means is that we have to take people out of the routine tasks, I think I've talked about before in the context of chat, GPT, and robots. We have to get the people who are willing and able to work that are doing routine jobs and have fewer people doing that, amplify their capacities with virtual robots and real robots so that we can train those people to do the non-routine tasks that neither robots nor chat GPT can do. And that will be true for a very, very long time. Uh, or put differently, for people who are doing non-routine tasks with their physical labor or cognitive tasks, we need to make them more productive by using artificial intelligence and physical robots so that they can do more of the non-routine stuff that the robots and AI can't do because we don't have enough people. We know that that's the, we don't have enough people to do the work. We also know that that there are just as many people employed today in America doing routine manual labor and routine cognitive labor, just as many people, a total of 60 million combined, people work in routine tasks. Half of them in manual tasks, half, half of them so-called knowledge work. There are 60 million people employed in those kind of tasks. 40 years ago, there are about 60 million employed in those kind of tasks today. So, you know, it's a percentage of the workforce that's shrunk, but as an absolute number, given we have a shrinking workforce, it hasn't changed. So... This, is, this has to be this has to get fixed and there's only way to fix it is with technology. He, and taking the routine and having the routine things done with fewer people, again, is the technology, a technology challenge and a technology solution. And the first place that's going to happen before the robots take over the manual labor, that's much harder, but it is coming. So I've talked about, again, refer you to my previous podcast on robots, one very recent one, is with the cloud. And good news is the spending on that hasn't slowed down. Massive, massive amounts of spending. I mean, the world is spending right now something approaching $6 trillion a year, building out the infrastructure of the physical and service-related services like software that make possible what I'm broadly calling the cloud. Uh, at the bottom of the stack, if you like, is hardware. It's like a trillion a year being spent on the hardware of the cloud. The software and services side is another $2 trillion a year. The network side, the communication side is over a trillion dollars a year. And then the end-use devices that are the new stuff, the AI and artificial the artificial uh, intelligence, the uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, robotics, all those kinds of tools co- collectively, already a trillion dollar a year uh spending in that category so th- again I take that as good news there's not there's no there's been no reversal the only the only slowdown, a brief reversal of that was again during the odious uh lockdowns of 2020 when the world's economy slowed and shrank uh and that I dare say, God willing is a one-time event of uh e- of epic uh malfeasance but uh it's not going to happen I don't think again in our lifetimes. I didn't say a pandemic's not going to happen again. I don't think we're going to deal with it that way again. But back to the theme and to, to, to wrap up. So here, so if you want to, again, think in broad brush terms, uh, what, what's happening is the, is the functionality that was clunky uh, of computing is being dragged into the cloud. So the, the PC, if you like your end-use devices, all of its real functionality is being increasingly migrated to the cloud. You still have to have that device, but the device is essentially a, a, a tool, a smart tool. People like to use that word, but it's a tool to access the the network. If you, I mean, the analogy is sort of not, is sort of clunky, but you could think of a the car obviously is like a tool that allows you to access the highway. But but for the the car, you couldn't use the highway. Walking on the highway doesn't really use the functional value of the highway, nor uh, is using a bicycle on the highway use the functional value of the highway. But, so you still need cars, you need highways, you need them both. The analogy is sort of weak there, but you get my point. If we think about other directions that we're going to go now, now that the cloud is, not only has enough power to do really, really different things that it has done in the, in the sort of 15 years of it being built out, the 20 years of being built out since first cloud data centers were conceived, if you think about what we use virtual augmented reality for, not just for gaming, but for medicine, for manufacturing, for design, those all those all become easier because the the equivalent to the PC, and it won't just be PC, all the devices that we have at the point of use for humans is being enabled by incredible powerful cloud functions. Rumor is Apple's gonna introduce shortly, maybe this year, uh, its own augmented or virtual reality device or headset. Uh, That could be a game changer. It's possible what they'll do will be as useful as the introduction of the first smartphone. Uh, you know, there were there were handheld equivalents of smartphones around for a decade, as most of you know, from the Palm Pilot to the BlackBerry was technically that. Very successful. Some successful, some not success, successful. But the inflection took off and a really useful device was created, which was, you know, 2007 with the with the smartphone, with the iPhone. The same thing can be said about, uh, uh, you know, healthcare, um, bioelectronics and telemedicine. The, the transformation of that Domain having truly useful amplification from artificial intelligence and also robotics and automation is just now beginning and it's being enabled again by the same forces I've just described. It's already a real industry. Telemedicine was accelerated by the odious lockdowns, which is a silver lining. Uh, and, and the diagnostic capabilities of things like smartphones and Fitbits are already well understood and they're getting better. They get better not just because the devices get better, but because they again can connect with talk with and do the uh, inferential learning in the powerful cloud the cloud t- to make a, uh, a side point here is not just massive data centers re- re- you know located remotely it's also what they're called edge data centers many many functions c- can't be performed uh, a long way away because latency matters the amount of time it takes for the device let's say on my wrist or the device on a on a, on a in a car or on a machine in a factory, if it wants to do a complicated inferential task based on the data it's collecting, it has to know in milliseconds what the answer is. You can't do that with data centers that are hundreds of miles away because the speed of light, uh, amazingly enough, is not fast enough. So the data centers have to be located sort of tens of miles away at most. And that's the so-called edge data center. So in some cases they have to be really close by, like in the same building, that's still an edge data center, but still part of the cloud It's just the the, the, the geometry of whether it's, or the geography rather, of whether it's a mile away, 10 miles away, or hundred miles away, a thousand miles away is all about use case. It's it's not about the architecture of the cloud or the utility function. And so uh, also if, we, if you think about the, the world of drones and robots, uh, the anthropomorphic robots, which I've talked about before, if you would just want to think again in broad brush terms, these are functionally just like PCs, a drone is like a PC with wings, computer with wings, a robot like, like, you know, mini uh, spot, spot mini is, um, you know, it's, it's a PC with legs. I mean, it's to trivialize it, but the architectural functionality to make it really useful will echo the trajectory of what's happened with the kind of computers that you use daily. They're getting better, faster, but they get better particularly because of integration with the cloud. So I think we're at, we're at an inflection and the question you might you might have and i'll sort of wrap up on this note is how how would you know uh how would one know that i'm right about my conviction that we're at an inflection so i would say uh you could think about three things that would tell you that the inflection has happened and um i'll give you one example at the macroeconomic level and two at the specific level it will tell you that what i'm claiming to be true, in fact, is true and is happening. The first would be to watch the uh, productivity data that the government tracks. We track productivity, the productivity growth rate. The US productivity growth rate has been declining since roughly 2004 or five. That is during the the in, in interregnum before the really expansion of a useful cloud. We've been building a cloud out, but you don't see it in the productivity data. Just, just like the, the famous Famous, you know, line you see. This is what uh, I think Greenspan said in the uh, in the late '80s or '90s. I forgot the exact date. You can see computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Well, okay, you can see the cloud everywhere except in the productivity statistics. There's a lag. That's why. Uh, but anyway, if we we track government data on productivity growth rate, what we what we know is that it was declining from around 2004 five and bottomed out. Somewhere around two thousand and fifteen seems to be slowly rising. So if the productivity growth rate continues to rise now as it has been for a few years, that continues for the next year or two. if that if the data show the trailing data, if you like that that's happening, I would say that that uh, is an indication that the pivots happen that we're we're back into an era of rising productivity growth rates. If that's true, that's great for the economy, that's great for killing inflation, long run. Uh, that's great for the future, and just as I started out by saying, with my observation about that, Joel Moicur says that what people believe has more to do with economic growth uh, than most economists like to admit. Well, productivity growth rates will will be a will be a predictor that's even more powerful than what people believe, because that's sort of a trailing indicator of what's actually happening. The two the two belief things in the sort of the Moicur category of what people believe. We'll, we'll see. We'll see by two other indicators. We'll, we'll see. We'll see another hype cycle on tech stocks. That's, what that's that will be an indicator because that re, those really hype cycles are really when it comes to stocks are really a belief driven thing, as you know. And what we are is in a um, we're in a sort of a tech stock winter right now. Everybody, I everything's mean, been beaten up. Some stocks are coming back, but by and large, if you if you're holding stocks in in tech areas, you're probably not a happy camper. But the indication of another hype cycle uh, is already is already there. Uh, it, the private market and public market valuations are artificial intelligence stocks is already starting to take off. If that continues, and it, I think it will continue, then you'll see that another hype, another tech stock hype cycle has begun. And this one will be not around the words the cloud. It won't be around, you know, things like fintech or things like green tech. it'll be around, It'll, all those other things will be repackaged around AI. AI hype has just begun, and if it keeps going for, let's just say, the coming months and year, then you'll know that we have an indication of another of another cycle. But also, it's because of the new technology. And in fact, the stocks may overshoot what they're really worth, but the the overshoot is coming because it's a recognition of something that's real, that's happening, something that's really consequential. And the third the third uh, indicator. That we're entering a, a new era i would say is uh and i've said this this before but it's an important one it will be the first uh ipo for a pure robot company you know but i mean a c3po anthropomorphic kind of robot company when we first when we see the first company that does an ipo around that and assuming it's a successful ipo but i think it probably will be that'll be another indicator sort of a pivot that's happened because we won't be able to do that unless they're actually good enough to be useful, and I've just explained why I think making them good enough to be useful is so important. Will that uh, cause the uh, Gallup tracking poll to change? Yeah, I think it will. I think if we look, if you look at the Gallup tracking poll and you go back further uh, in time and you go back to earlier eras, so they've been doing this for a long time, the the percentage of people mentioning uh, economic issues goes up and goes down. You know, when things are really booming, it, it, it really, it it sags when things are, we're having economic challenges, it soars. What a shock, right? So (laughs) I think, well, that would be another indicator. We can watch the Gallup tracking poll, but that's, that would be, I'm not sure if I'd call it a trailing or a leading indicator. Maybe, maybe it's actually a leading indicator. We'll, we'll, we'll see. So that's it uh, for this, this uh, episode. Uh, And as as I say at the end of every episode, reminding you, give me a rating, uh, any kind of rating you really want, but we prefer good ratings. Send me questions. I've been getting questions. I keep bumping into people who are listening, which is wonderful when that happens when I'm traveling. And so people have, have posed other questions for me. I am collecting them. I will do an episode of answering questions in the coming, uh, in the coming weeks and months. And with that, uh, this is Mark Mills. Signing off until next time for this episode of The Last Optimist.